0: I want to say thanks today to Laura um, for standing in for Dane and to Pamela and Sarah and Karen and the Jess and the Sarah and Mark around the corner here as well, all of those who have used their talents today to lead us in the worship of God. So, let's turn to God's Word again together. And I wonder when you get home from church today, if you're arriving home to people in your house Who weren't actually at church today, if they ask you, Well, what was the minister talking about today? What were you looking at in church? You might be inclined to say, I think the rain stopped now, or something like that, in answer to that question. What did you make of that chapter? If you were seeking to engage with God's word today, if you were looking at the words and following along the words, what did you make of this chapter of Scripture? I very deliberately read the whole of this chapter of God's Word, and I very deliberately read it after our youngest kids had headed out to junior church, because it is really unsavory stuff. And yet, this is the Bible. And remember what we're told in Scripture about Scripture, what it is that Paul says to his fellow gospel worker, Timothy, and he talks about Scripture, and he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And what he's saying is that every single word that's contained in the Bible is God's Word to us. Yes, it is written down by people, but it is ultimately God by His Holy Spirit speaking those words. And also, Paul points out to Timothy and to us, and and on top of that, God's Word is useful. All Scripture, every bit of it, he says, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And you might think, well, how could that possibly be useful for all of those things? That particular chapter that we have just read together… And yet the Bible says of the Bible, all Scripture, not just the nice, straightforward bits, not just the bits that we would include in our Sunday school lesson or in our junior church rota but all of Scripture. So, what are we to possibly make of what we have just read? Do you ever find out things about your family that you'd rather not know? That's the great danger of digging too deep into the past. All the time people call up my manse, or they, they call the manse by phone, or they send me an email because they want some records of a baptism or of a marriage in the past because they're digging in to their family's past. And sometimes if you dig too much, you're going to unearth something that you'd rather not know. Well, here… In Scripture, we are reading about one of the best-known families in the Bible, a family that God was going to use as the foundation for His special nation, the nation that would be a light and a blessing to all the other nations. But when you start digging into this family's past, you discover that they are the most unlikely family for God to choose and use. Today, as we continue to think about Joseph and his amazing dysfunctional family, once again, our focus turns away from Joseph himself and to another of his brothers, this time Judah, and the relationship that Judah had with this woman, Tamar. And we need to know that life would not have been easy for Tamar. As a woman in what was a male-dominated society, she was vulnerable, and she was exploited. And, And therefore, she had to use her guile. She even had to use her sexuality in order just to survive. And her life bears the mark of sin. She was both sinned against and a sinner. You could describe her as being both a victim and a player. And yet, remarkably, this woman gets a special mention in the New Testament, as we'll see in a while. She gets a special shout-out at the beginning of one of the Gospels that is celebrating and looking at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're soon able to see the mark of sin upon these lives That we encounter here in Genesis chapter 38. You just need to go a few verses in to realize this is wild stuff. And if you read a chapter like Genesis 38 expecting to see a good example to follow, you're going to be sorely disappointed, because there is absolutely nothing good or wholesome or positive about what we encounter here in this chapter, the behavior that unfolds in this story. Just take a quick scan through it and the key characters, beginning with Judah himself. And let's locate Judah in the overall story that we're thinking about. He is one of the older brothers of of Joseph. He is a son of Jacob. And we would have to say that Judah's actions in this chapter, are shameful. What he does against Tamar is incredibly wrong and sinful. First of all, he breaks his promise to her, and this is all a bit complicated, but he has a special responsibility to her as a widow of one of his sons. It is his task to find another husband for Tamar, because having a husband is her future. It is the only way that a woman in this society could really survive and thrive. And Judah half-heartedly makes promises, but he has absolutely no intention of fulfilling these promises and doing this job. He just regards Tamar as a big problem that he would rather be rid of. And then later on, and this is where the story gets really dodgy, he is guilty of the most terrible double standards. When Tamar realizes that she's been deceived, well, she decides to fight fire with fire in verse 14. So, she disguises herself. She makes herself look like a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, in in order that she will have her father-in-law's child. And when she gets pregnant and when the news breaks about that pregnancy, and eventually when Judah finds out about his daughter-in-law expecting a child, well, look at the double standards here, the hypocrisy. Verse 24, we're told about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And what is Judah's response Is it, bring her back to my home? We better support her. She belongs to me. No, bring her out and have her burned to death. What? What's that all about? Think about what Judah has been up to himself. And this passes on through the family. We think of one of Judah's sons, Onan, and we read about him in verses 8 to 10, and I'm certainly not going to dwell on this part of the story too much, but Onan, suffice to say, has a responsibility to his dead brother's wife. It may seem very weird to us the way this culture and this society worked, but he had this responsibility, and he was instructed by his father to see it through. But what does he do? Well, he goes to bed with her, and he has all the fun without seeing the job through and doing what was required of him. He deceives Tamar, and he disobeys his dad. And again, his treatment of Tamar is awful. He regards her as nothing more than a plaything for his pleasure. And this is the world that Tamar herself lived in. It's one in which, to be honest, women didn't stand a chance— But let's not think of Tamar as completely innocent and blameless in all of this, because while her actions in some ways might have been understandable, she does what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. She tricks her father-in-law. She sleeps with him. She is by no means virtuous in all of this. And you would have to say today, hearing that summary of the story, that this is pretty grim stuff, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's not really Sunday school material. And if I said to you next week, could you do a children's talk on that? You'd run down through Kells, and you wouldn't stop until you'd got beyond Ballymena. We just wouldn't want to talk about that in that setting. So, as we finish off today… What can we possibly go home with from this chapter? What can we possibly learn for our lives from a passage like this? Well, let me leave you with a few things that I think we can learn from this passage, because I actually believe that this is a great passage of Scripture. I think that this is a hopeful passage, that this is a gospel passage, that it's actually good news. And maybe at this stage, you're thinking, Philip has lost the plot, his head's cut. But here's what we hear today. As we think about a passage like this, what can we learn? Well, first of all, we can learn that God's Word can be trusted. God's Word, the Bible, is truth and it is concerned about the truth. It always tells the truth, even when there is what we might want to describe as being an inconvenient truth. It even tells the ugly truth, so that later on in the Bible, as we'll see in a few moments, both Judah and Tamar are mentioned in relation to our Savior, our Lord Jesus. Jesus. There's a word that's emerged over the past ten years, a new word, or a new term. It is post-truth. And it implies that our world has changed, that people no longer really are concerned about what the actual objective facts are. They're just concerned about how we interpret them. And we see that. We see that in politics at the very highest level. We see that in our own lives. We see that in our interactions on social media. But God's Word is so different. If you take Matthew's gospel, for example, and I encourage you to keep your hand in at Genesis 38, but also turn to the beginning of the New Testament on Matthew 1. And I've already mentioned the, the genealogy of Jesus. That's the way in which Matthew begins his gospel. And what Matthew sets out to do is to present Jesus as the Messiah. He wants Jewish people to know that the Messiah that they read about, the one who has promised in their Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that He comes in the form of Jesus. He is the Christ. And He begins His gospel with a a summarized version of Jesus' ancestors. And you would think because it is a summary, he could conveniently leave out the ugly bits. He could drop the names that might cause any kind of embarrassment or discomfort. And yet, he gives us the ugly truth about Christ's ancestors. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see there are some of the names that we've been hearing in this chapter that we have read today. And it would have been really easy for Matthew to say, just at this point, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, now let's move on really quickly. We don't want to make too much of him, but no. He lobs in another four words like a petrol bomb. He adds, whose mother was Tamar. And so, for Jewish people who would have known these stories who would have read the scriptures as they began to read about the life of Jesus? There are two names side by side, and straight away an association. People would have saw Judah and Tamar, and they would have thought, "Ah, right. Oh yes, we remember that story. How could you forget?" It's Matthew going out of his way to draw our attention to the ugly truth. And we'll find out exactly why he does that in just a moment, but what we need to know is that God's Word is truth. It can be trusted. There are no cover-ups, no whitewashes, and it is such an antidote to our post-truth world. But then second, this chapter tells us and reminds us that God's Word is not a morality guidebook. And that might seem like a a strange thing for a minister to say from a pulpit in a Presbyterian church on a Sunday afternoon to a congregation. But that is not the primary purpose of God's Word. Now, of course, God's Word does guide us in our lives, very much so. In many places, it teaches us what is right and what is wrong. It has a lot of direct teaching about how we should think and speak and act. So, Paul is right in 2 Timothy 3 when he says of the Bible as being useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we need to say today that morality is important. How we live our lives really matters. God calls His people to be holy because He is holy, Jesus calls His followers to become more and more like Him by the help of the Holy Spirit that He promises. But if we simply see the Bible as nothing more than a morality guidebook, then there will be places where we will be very disappointed. Places like here in Genesis 38, because this chapter has nothing to commend it if the Bible is just a morality guidebook. It would be a bit weak if my sermon amounted to, well, Judah didn't keep his promise, and he had double standards, so don't be like Judah. Onan didn't see the job through. He didn't do what he was meant to do. Don't be like Onan. Tamar was devious, and she seduced her father-in-law. Don't be like Tamar. Talk about stating the obvious. And by the way, don't be like those people. But you will have to dig very, very deep to find positives to take away from the behavior of Tamar and and of Judah and of Onan. But don't worry, that is not the main purpose of the Bible. Ultimately, the Bible, God's Word, is good news. And believe it or not, this is a good news story. This is a gospel passage. Why does Matthew then name both Judah and Tamar with all of the associations that those names would have had? Well, it's exactly because of the associations those names would have had. This story that is saturated with sin reminds us exactly why we need Jesus— It reminds us that sin matters to God, and that's why He sent the Christ, His Son, into the world. And if you look back in Genesis 38 at those two verses 7 and 10, the same phrase is used in verses 7 and 10, commenting on Judah's first two sons, of whom one was onan. And it says of these two sons in summary, he was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And those are words that sum up the bad news that is part of the gospel, the bad news that makes the good news so incredibly good. Those are words that remind us what sin is, that ultimately it is acting against God as much as it might hurt those around us and we might have wronged them. Ultimately, we are doing something that is wrong in God's sight. And those are words that remind us of the ultimate consequence of sin, that sin and death are great allies. And at the beginning of Matthew, we're introduced to the Christ. We are introduced to Jesus, the one who came to rescue people from our sin. And as we see those names popping up at the start of, those gosp- uh, of that gospel, it is a reminder to us about the ugly truth about ourselves. And that's why you need Jesus. Have you turned to Him? This story reminds us how God works out His purposes, how He brings about redemption. And for me today, there is great hope. There is really great hope when I realize that God has a plan to bring His Son into the world to save people, and it's a plan that involves a dysfunctional family like Judah's, like Jacob's. I find that really hopeful because I'm going to to tell you today, I'm part of a dysfunctional family. And that's because I'm a dysfunctional person, and so are you. That's what sin does to us. But when we come to Jesus, when we trust in Him, then we are sinners saved by grace. And, as Paul tells us later in the Scriptures, we are saved for a purpose. Look at Ephesians 2 where Paul talks about what Jesus has done and what God has done in the lives of His people by grace. He says in verse 8, "'It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast.'" And he adds, "'For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus,' to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it's such a brilliant reminder that God takes sinful people, and through His Son Jesus, and by His Holy Spirit, He changes them. He brings them to be the people that He wants and calls them to be, and He uses them as part of His plan. As we finish off, back in Genesis 38, this girl Tamar had a tough life. A woman in a society where women were treated like second-class citizens, a widow married into a family of schemers and dodgy characters, and yet she was so important in God's rescue plan. She was an ancestor in the long line that led to the birth of a Savior. So, today and every day, don't ever say, I can never be used by God because of my background, because of my family, because of my messed up life. Jesus in His love, God in His grace, as you look to Him and trust in Him, can take your messed up life, and He can redeem it and change it and use you to fulfill His purposes. And this is grace. So, Jesus calls you to follow Him, to trust Him, to believe that His death gives you forgiveness and gives you real life. Amen. We're going to